Today we're going to talk about worship. Um, if you don't know, if you haven't met me, normally I'm up here behind a guitar. Um, not while I preach. No, normally I just, hey guys. No, um, normally I help lead worship, and that's mostly my job here. Um, and so you'd say, well, yeah, duh, you're going to talk about worship, uh, but I like to stick to what I know. And um, last week we talked about the fact that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that worship starts here, that if we are not people that create a temple here, that it, it, it won't affect our lives. It won't be something that's real. So today we're going to talk about the next step of worship, because worship starts here, but it can't end here. In fact, if we really believe what God says, if we are really filled with the Holy Spirit, I believe that we just can't physically let it stop here, but that it has to affect the way that we live our lives. So today we're going to talk about the next step in worship. And I'm actually going to tell you God's favorite kind of worship. And some of you are like, wait a minute, God doesn't play favorites. That's not true. God does play favorites. And I believe he really does have a favorite type of worship. And we're going to figure out what that is. So as we dive into really talking about worship, um, I'm going to do what every good high school speech student does, and I'm going to start with defining my terms. So we're going to define worship. So if we look at worship, you can really break down worship into two words, worthship. If we kind of just add a, a letter, worth, you know, a couple letters, worthship. So when we worship something, we give it worth. So you know, we, we've all heard in our Bible studies that you can worship a great many things, right? Like you can worship money. You can worship success. You can worship relationships with other people. And that just means that you give them a lot of worth. You give them time. But what we're talking about today is when we, we put something as the most important thing, when we worship something above everything else. For example, we give money worth, right? Because we give uh, money our time, right? We have jobs where we give them our time, and in exchange, we get, you know, money. So we give it worth, but there's, a, there's something that happens when something shifts from just regular to, to worship, to where we worship money. We worship success. It's the most important thing in our lives, and everything kind of falls in under it. And we've all seen that the people that they, they worship money and they worship success to the point where they spend so much time on their job that they ignore their family. And it's not because they don't love their family. That's a misunderstanding. What it is is that money and success is the most important thing to them because they believe that their security comes from money and that their identity comes from that success or money because when we worship something the most, that's where our security is, that's where our identity is, and that's where we put our love. What the scripture says is that when we put our treasure somewhere, that's where our heart is. So worship is about giving our love. And so when we put our identity and our, and our security in money, we quickly find out that it's not a trustworthy thing because all the money in the world cannot make you secure from everything. And, and when your identity is in success, there come times in our lives where we're not successful and our identity falls apart. Sometimes we put our worship into relationships. We think, man, if I just am a good husband, then that's where my security and my, my um, identity comes from. But then we let people down or people let us down, and it happens all the time, and then our identity and our security fall apart again. Because the thing is that it's not that God is the only one we can worship. It's that he's the only one who's worth worship. He's the only one that when we put worth and when we put our love into him, we won't be let down. 
He's the only one who we can safely put our identity into. He's the only one we can safely put our security into because he never changes. He's the same today as he was 2,000 years ago, and he will be the same tomorrow. And that's why Luke 14, 26, it says this. It says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And there are chunks of scripture that we love to read, right? That, you know, God has a purpose for me. God has a a future for me. We love reading that. This one is not one we love reading. But I don't think it's saying that we need to actively hate our brothers, our sisters, our moms, our dads. Not at all. What it's saying is that when we compare it to the love and the worship that we give to God, it should be like night and day. Like it's so much that, that God's the one we love the most to the point where every other relationship It just doesn't even look like love. And what happens is when we worship God like this, when we love God like this, the other stuff falls into place. There's a very common thing, and it's been common for a long time. This is not a recent thing, but uh, it's called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Have you heard of that? It's the idea that when you become a Christian, that everything falls into place, that your bank account will quadruple in size, and that, you know, you'll never get sick, you know, and it's a absolute false idea of what the gospel really is. But there is a truth that when you don't worship money, but you worship God, you put money in its place, and a lot of times, God works it out. He blesses you. And in our relationships with our wives, our our brothers, sisters, mother, father, when we go into those relationships not trying to find identity and, and needing things from them, but saying, you know what, I'm loved by God. My security, my identity is in God. The other stuff falls into place. Because you can go into that relationship and you can love them with the selfless love of God rather than a need for identity in them. So I, hopefully you're starting to see that, that when we worship God, that it's right to worship God. It's a good thing to worship God. But the question is then how do we worship God? So we're going to do something that um, every time I say we're going to do this, it's like everyone just stands up and cheers. We're going to get into the Greek and the Hebrew. <laughs> oh, you know? Um, so hang with me, you know, Greek, I love this stuff, I'm a nerd, but not everybody does, but just hang with me, because we we can see a lot, we can learn a lot by what the languages that people used back then, how they described worship. So I have three words for worship from the New Testament, and then some corresponding words from the Old Testament. They're not the same, like any language, Uh, it's not ever the exact same meaning, right? Uh, We we, we want to always want, you know, Google, give me an exact translation, you know, but it's very different. They mean different things, but we're going to, they reflect the same idea. So the first word, and it's the most common word for worship in the New Testament is proskuneo. And it means to fall down and kiss the ground, to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. So people would use it back then, like in, in a king, they would fall down and they would literally kiss the ground that the king was walking on. But the actual root of the word means to lick, like, like licking the master's hand. Not exactly the you know, best word for <laughs> like, what? You know, but it reflects really uh, our attitude of worship. And, and the way they use it is in, in Matthew 8, 2. It's a man with leprosy came and knelt. And that word knelt is this word proskuneo before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So it's, it's we approach God with just that humility. We just fall down. We kiss the ground that he walks on. And the closest word in the Old Testament is a word barak. It's a strong sound, barak. It means to kneel or bow, to give reverence as an act of adoration. 
So it means to bow, to kneel down. So um, one of the ways, we, we sang it this morning, bless the Lord, O my soul. And um, in Psalm 34, 1, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So I will bless. That word bless is barak. It means to, I will kneel and I will bow in adoration. And these two reflect the same attitude of worship. We talked about it last week, this idea that every day we worship God. And it's not that we just quit our jobs and we sit at home in a dark room and we read the Bible. But it's that we live our lives in honor of God, that we live in his presence and that everything we do is worship. Every simple act, walking your dog, every, it's worship if we do it in the presence of God. It's this attitude of humility and thankfulness of bowing down every morning to say, God, you're good. But the amazing part of Jesus, and he did this all throughout Scripture, when people would bow down before them, he would lift them up. And when we bow before God, he lifts us up and we enter into relationship. Because that's what that everyday kind of worship is about. It's about getting to know him. It's about getting to know the master's hand, getting to know his voice, knowing who he is. So that's the first. That's the most common word for worship in the New Testament, right? So we're going to go to the next word, the second word, but we're going to skip it. Keeping you on your toes. We're going to come back to it, though, I promise. The third most common word is agaleao. Agaleao. Okay, I'm going to say that once. Agaleao. And it means to jump for joy, to leap or exalt. I love that this is such a common word. It's just like to jump for joy. And the best example in Scripture, it's that Luke 144. It's my favorite. So Sarah is pregnant with um, John the Baptist, and Mary is pregnant with um, Jesus, and they meet, and John the Baptist is in her belly, and he just starts jumping around, you know, because he's so excited, even as an infant, to be in the presence of Jesus. And that's what this word means. It means just to jump for joy. And the closest word that we can find in, in the Old Testament is the word Allah's. And it means the same thing, to rejoice, exult, or jump for joy. So in Psalm 28, 7, it says, The Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with all my heart. He helps me, and my heart is filled with joy. Filled with joy is that word Allah. It's just to rejoice. I'm so filled with joy. And just like that first word, it's when we worship by ourselves every day and when we come into his presence. When we come together as a body, when we're individual temples that come together and we become something, the church, we come together and we jump for joy. We rejoice. We exult. We sing songs like, God, the glory is yours. The kingdom's come. The battle's over. And we sing these truths to God and we say, God, you're good. We bless you. We bless the Lord. And we're shouting and we're jumping. That's what this reflects. That's the word for praise in the New Testament. It's David. And if you've ever heard that story of David when he just is worshiping and he takes his clothes off. And he's in Jerusalem, running around in his underwear, worshiping God. It's that kind of excitement, jumping for joy. But those aren't God's favorite types of worship. He loves when we spend time with him. He loves when we lift him up together as a body. But his favorite is this next word. It's that second word. We're going to go back to it. It's the word latreo. And it means to serve. It means to render religious service. So in Hebrews 12, 28, this, this, this is what it says. And I just love this verse. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God, that word latreo, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. 
What I love about this word is that throughout the New Testament, it's used interchangeably as service and worship. It's the same. The closest Hebrew word or one, a correlating Hebrew word is abad, which means to serve as a bondservant. And a bondservant was like a slave, but it's one who entered willingly into service, a bondservant, one who was bonded to a master. And throughout Scripture, and again in the Old Testament, it's used interchangeably with worship. In Psalm 100, verse 2, it says, Worship the Lord with gladness. Worship, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him, singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is good. This is God's favorite form of worship, is service, is obedience. And we see this in Scripture. In Hebrews 10, this is what it says. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. So what Jesus is doing there, and this is the author of Hebrews quoting Jesus, and Jesus, like he often did, he quotes the Psalms. And he's saying, God, you don't want just the sin offerings. You don't just want the animal sacrifices and the burnt offerings. And that's how, that's how the Jews worshiped. And I think sometimes we view our time in church as that, right? We come to kind of fulfill our obligation. We sing as like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for the sin. I'll sing now as a burnt offering. Sorry. Any kind of worship we do, we're like, oh, my bad, you know. And he's like, I don't want that. And Jesus says, no, I've come to do your will, oh God. Even more clearly, this is reflected in John 14, 15. It says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Like, way too easy. <laughs> if you love me, if you worship me, if, if your love for me it makes every other relationship look like hate, then do what I say to do. And sometimes I worry that, that we as the church aren't attracting the same people that Jesus attracted, the broken, the people that weren't good enough. But instead, when we're attracting religious people, I wonder if we're doing the things Jesus said to do. Because he says, if you love me, do what I did. Obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. Feed the poor. Care for the widows. Love your neighbors as yourself. Seek my kingdom first. And that's when, that's when our worship will be real. And the world notices real worship. If you look at the early church, what people saw was they saw how they worshiped and they wanted to be a part of it because how we worship reflects the God that we serve, right? So people looked at the early church and said, these people care about each other. Maybe their God cares. This, this, these people, when they worship together, there is power there. They must, serve, they must worship a powerful God. I think sometimes if our worship is legalistic, people think that our God is legalistic. And when our worship is bored and dead, maybe they think our God's boring and dead. Maybe they'd be knocking down these doors if they saw worship that was powerful and full of love. Maybe we need to do what he said to do. But I, I, as I read through this, as I got prepared for the sermon, I was like, okay, I have some questions. First of all, if, if service is his favorite type of worship, how come that's not the most common word? right? How come that first word, that getting low before God is the most common word of worship? And my second question was, isn't that legalism? 
when we say the most important thing you can do is just listen to God and do what he says. Obey the rules. But if we really look, I think we'll see that that's, that's not the case. Uh, there's a man by the name of Richard Foster. I said last week, and I'll say it again, I quote people that are smarter than me because it makes me sound smarter. But Richard Foster is an incredible author. He wrote this great book called Celebration of Discipline. And he says this. He says, as worship begins in holy expectancy, it ends in holy obedience. And I say that to answer both of those questions. Because the truth is, the reason that, that it's only the like, it's second most common word is because I think it needs to be preceded by the other two. I think when we respond in obedience, it has to come out of a place of relationship with God every day. It has to come out of us gathering together and urging each other on and encouraging each other and lifting God up. That's where obedience comes from. When we come to worship on Sunday morning and when we worship every day expecting God to do what he said he would do, the only right response is obedience and to do what he said to do. Because our response, our worship is always a response to God. God's always the first one to do something. It's never like we just were like, you know what, God's good, I should worship him. No, the Israelites worshiped God because he brought them out of Egypt. He, he started it. And we worship God because he sent Jesus. He started it. We're just responding. And that second thing, is it legalism? No, it's not legalism. Because we're not doing what God told us to do because if we don't, we're going to hell. We're doing it out of a relationship with God. We are interacting with him every day. We love him. It's hard not to do what he wants us to do. And if our relationship is genuine, then we should respond in holy obedience. The best way that I've ever um, heard to explain this is a pastor back home. I always like to give credit. Les Beecham is, uh, was our pastor back in Omaha, and he used the five love languages to explain worship. So I'm wholesale stealing this from him, just to be clear. And a lot of the other stuff I'm stealing from a guy named Zach Neese. If you want to read an awesome book on worship, it's How to Worship a King by Zach Neese. Awesome stuff. I just want to give credit where credit's due. Zach, Les, don't get mad at me. But um, I want to explain worship in the idea of the five love languages. Has anybody read this? It's a book by Gary Chapman. It's great for um, spouses to read together. It's great just to understand how people receive love and affection because we all receive love and affection differently. And what he says is that there's five love languages, five ways that we communicate love. And oftentimes the way you communicate love is the same way you receive love. And this really makes a lot of sense. So I just want to lay out. These are the five love languages. The first one is quality time. I think we could, yeah, sweet. Quality time. And what that means is that you just receive and you give love by just spending time with people. This is how my wife is. She doesn't want anything fancy. She doesn't want me to tell her how awesome she is. She just wants me to spend time with her. And then, you know, a second one is words of affirmation. And that's the nice words. Like, hey, you're awesome. You're, you know, I love you so much. Sometimes people, they just want to hear that word. I love you. For other people, and I really dislike these people, gifts. I dislike them because when they're in your family, they, they nail Christmas. Like every time you're like, this is wonderful. And I am not that guy. A quick story. <laughs> our first year of marriage, our first Christmas together, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do it right. And so I was listening to her. She was talking to my brothers. And my brothers bought me that year this surf watch that I never use. It shows you the tides, and I never look at it for that. But, and I heard her say, oh, that's really cool. So I'm like, I'm going to buy her a surf watch. And I bought it, and I wrapped it, and she opened it. She hated it. <laughs> she was like, she's like, oh, she never wears it. I wear it. 
You know, and I learned that lesson. I'm just not a gift dude, right? But the problem is I put all my chips on that table. I was like, surf watch. And then there was really nothing else. It was really bad. I've learned my lesson, just lots. And just, you know, like a shotgun, just try and get something she likes. My gift is acts of service. So what I do is, man, I do the dishes at home. I'm so domesticated. I do the dishes. I do the laundry. I'm that guy. And I like doing laundry. It's really weird. But that's how I show my love for my wife is I do these things for her. The other day, yesterday, I cleaned out our grill. We had this charcoal grill, and it was gross. And I cleaned it out, and I got a new grate and everything. I was like, look. And she's like, cool. But to me, that grill is like, I love you, you know? And then the last one is physical touch. And we all know those people that's like, I just want to hug. Like, if you touch them, if you, that's how they experience love. But like I said, so hers is quality time. Mine is acts of service. So I would be cleaning the house saying, I love you. And she'd be in the bedroom like, I'm being ignored. <laughs> and so I had to learn to, to just spend time with her. And she knows I get fidgety. Like five minutes in, I'm like, you know, let's do something. You know, but she just wants to sit and talk. And she has to learn that she just, little things that she does for me, I act like she like, you know, painted the Mona Lisa. I'm like, did that. You love me. And so we have to learn to, to be uncomfortable in those languages that we don't speak naturally. You know, we don't naturally, if acts of service is weird for you, you just got to do it and be like, I don't even know, but they're going to absolutely receive love. I think this is the same way with God. I think these correlate really well with the love languages of God. But the difference is God doesn't just have one love language. He has many. And we really need to be uncomfortable and speak in love languages that we don't understand. So I want to put these up. And these are... I, are God's love languages. And again, I stole this from my pastor. So um, quality time is quiet time. It's that worship that we talked about, that everyday spending time with God. And it can be in scripture, it can be in prayer, it can be just you going to the beach and just spending time with God. Whatever way you connect with God, you gotta do it. You gotta spend time with him. You gotta get to know him. Even if it's uncomfortable, you just gotta get to know him, pray to him, talk to him. Second is like words of affirmation. We have praise and worship. That's when we get together in a room and we jump and we shout for joy. And God's like, see, they love me. And we say things like, God, the glory's yours. Bless you. Bless the Lord. I need you. That, that, I need you to soften my heart. We need you, God. That's, God's another, that's another way he receives love. Another one is gifts or tithes and offerings. When we give back to God, and the Bible says 10%, we give back to God what's really his that's a, that's, he receives love that way. The next one is acts of service or serving. Like when we serve other people, God's just like, see, they love me. And physical touch, when we're the hands and the feet of Jesus, when we are there to care for each other like Jesus does, when we're in small groups and ohana groups and we care and we're, the, we're God covered in flesh, that's what it means to, to physical touch. So just like I had to relearn and, and learn some uncomfortable things, sometimes we're really comfortable about one way of worship, but like other ones are kind of weird. Like some people really get giving, tithing. When they write that check or when they give online, they're like, God, I love you. And this money is not my God. I want to give that money back to you because it's yours. But then we come together for praise and worship, and they're like, this is really weird. I'm going to stand back in the back and just not make eye contact with Charlie. And uh, they don't know what to do. And it's uncomfortable, and I appreciate that, but you got to step into it. you got to learn that love language. I mean, raise your hands, maybe. I'm not, it's not magic. It's not like worship. No, you know, worship, not worship, worship, you know. But it's something to spur you on in worshiping. 
Or maybe you really get that quiet time. You love spending your quiet time with God. You love to read the Bible. You love to get to know God that way. But as soon as you get around other people, you're like, weird, don't look at me. You know, you get really uncomfortable. You got to step into that. You got to grow in caring for each other. I want you to look at this list because, like I said, service is his favorite. Look, the first two are, are those first two words, right? Quiet time is that just getting down on your face before God, saying, God, you're good. I want to just know you, right? Praise and worship is that second one where we jump for joy, but every other one is about service and obedience. Look at that. I mean, I'm not making this up. That's mathematics. The, the other three, it's all about obedience, obeying to do what he said to do. But there's one more thing. There's a missing component. We can learn all of these languages. We can get good at every single one, but we need to have passion. Do you think my wife really believes me when we spend time together and I'm like, hey, baby, we're spending quality time and I'm on my phone? I will tell you from experience, the answer is no. <laughs> I would love to tell you that that never happens, that I'm always an attentive and caring husband, but often I'm like, but the phone is so shiny. Or I try to sneak it, she calls it pretend sleeping. When we're like going to bed and I'm like rolled over and I got my phone. She gets so mad at me. She's like, God, my phone. And so I'm scrolling through. Do you think she feels loved? No. What about God? What do you think when we open up our Bible for like two seconds, we're like, oh, crud, I need to do my. No, thanks, God. Quiet time, done. Do you think he's like, oh, thank you, yes. I feel so loved. I don't think so. What about, you know, when we, when we come together to worship and you walk in late, you don't like the song, so you stand there like this, you look bored, you look angry, you think God's just sitting there like, oh, they love me, they're jumping for joy in their hearts, maybe, you know? No, I don't think he does. What about giving when we just give out of obligation, like a tip, like, oh, yeah, they sing okay today. Yes, I'm sure God is just like glowing with love. Any of these things, we can learn to just go through the motions. We need passion. But a lot of times, we, we pull away from passion. If you've noticed, a lot of times in the church, sometimes we swing one way, and then we just swing to the opposite, right? Like, you know, in the 70s, 80s, there was this, like, Jesus movement where people were just all about emotions, you know? Like, God says it's all good, you know, whatever. Just love God. And they just left the truth behind. And so now we've reacted, and we're like, it's not about love. It's about truth. There's no passion. There's no emotion. And I would love to ask how that's working out in your marriage. <laughs> because here's the deal. There needs to be passion. But there's two definitions of passion. The first definition of passion is barely controllable emotion. Strong and barely controllable emotion. And I think this needs to be a part of our relationship with God. There need to be moments where we're just like, I'm so filled with the love of God. I can barely control myself. In fact, there's a word in Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word for worship, and it's pronounced gil, and it just means to spin under the influence of a violent emotion. That's so cool. Just to spin and just be like, God, I love you so much. That needs to be a part. We can't forget emotion. We can't just take it out. But it's not the most important part of passion, right? And, and from my two years of experience in marriage, I'm going to lay some wisdom on you. no. There's passion, there's the butterflies, there's the gooey, like, oh, I just love you. And then there are the days where it's like, I just want to, you know. <laughs> and my wife feels that all. I see it in her face sometimes. She's like, I just love you so much, you know. 
And the, but there's a different kind of passion. It's the second definition of passion, and it's the passion of Christ. In the dictionary, the second definition of passion is the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins. Isn't that awesome? And Jesus, I'm sure there were times when he was going to the cross where he wasn't like, oh, I just love him so much. <laughs> Thank you. But he did it anyway. And in the same way, in the times where we feel gooey about God, we need to be passionate. In the times where we don't feel the presence of God at all and we're mad and sin is just ripping our lives apart and we're angry at people, we need to have that same passion because he never changes. He's never less worthy of worship. So we can't come in when we're feeling good and be like, yeah, God, my hands are raised. Next week we're like, I hate this song. We just can't. It doesn't work in marriage. The question we need to ask ourselves, are we fair-weather friends of Jesus or are we passionate lovers of Jesus? Because we're one or the other. Do we look at our other relationships and it's like hate compared to our love that we have for God? The love and the worship that we give God, it just makes our other relationships just like, I can't compare. Do we want to spin around under the control of violent emotion? Do we want to just get on our face and be like, God, you're so good. Which one are you? I want to read a, a quote from Oswald Chambers that I read last week. Again, smarter people than me. And this is what he says. He says, never allow anything to divert you from your insight into Jesus Christ. It is the true test of whether you are spiritual or not. To be unspiritual means that other things have a growing fascination for you. Since mine eyes have looked on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. So unchained my spirit's vision, gazing on the crucified. Is he all you can see? Does he fill up your eyes? Do you love him? And if you would say no, that is okay to say that. But it's not okay to continue to live like you're not following Jesus and say that you are. I'm going to pray in a moment, and I want to pray for two groups of people. I want, you, I want to pray for you if you're like, I have never felt that passion. I don't know what that's like. I don't have the Holy Spirit inside me. I don't know what that feeling is. I want to pray for you today that you'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you would leave with the Holy Spirit inside you, that you would begin to feel that passion, whether it's the bubbly, gooey passion or just the commitment that I have committed to loving Jesus. Or if you've been a follower for a long time and like a marriage that's lost the sizzle a little bit, your relationship with God has lost that sizzle. It's begun to fade, and it's kind of just become this empty, I come to church because I've always come to church. I want to pray for you too. So would you pray with me? Father God, I pray um, for that first group, the, the ones that they just have never known you in that way. They don't know your spirit. They've never received the filling of your spirit, God. I pray that you'd fill them today, that they would feel maybe for the first time the love of Jesus, that they would be changed and that they would get to know him. God, we need to know you better. And Lord, I pray for that second group that have been Christians for a long time, that have forgotten the love languages, that have given up on ever really knowing you and have settled for a faraway relationship. God, we're not meant to be long distance. You're meant to be right up close. So I pray for that group as well, Lord, that you'd fill them again with your spirit, that they would remember what that's like. Lord, we pray this in your name and in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would fill, fill us with your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.